Have you noticed that most leaders are also achievers? And I'd be willing to bet that you, the person that I'm talking to right now, I bet you're an achiever. Because who else uses their free time to listen to a business and leadership development podcast? Let's be real. You are not normal. But here's the deal. If we are not careful, there's a danger to achievement, to performance, and to personal growth. Because the danger is that we can get so focused on moving forward individually that we forget the whole purpose of leadership, other people. From the Ramsey Network, this is the Entree Leadership Podcast, where we help business leaders grow themselves, their teams, and their profits. I'm your host, Alex Judd, and today we get to learn from one of the most remarkable achievers on the planet. Scott Parazinski has lived in locations around the globe. He's attended one of the most prestigious med schools in the United States. He's nearly qualified for the Olympics. He's summited Mount Everest, and get this, folks, he's been to space five times. That's right. He's an astronaut, and he's now also built and is running a thriving business. But I'm going to challenge you. As you listen to this, of course, you should admire his achievements and his experiences, but don't just stop there. Listen closely for the humility, the servant mindset, the focus on teamwork, and the relentless desire to lift up others. Because it's in those principles that we can learn lessons which transcend achievement and point all of us towards leadership. And as with any great leadership story, Scott's started with a vision. I wanted to become an astronaut since I could walk and talk. My father worked on the Apollo program when I was very young. So he he helped design and test the Saturn V boosters that first sent men to the moon in the late 60s, early 70s. So I had model rockets and posters on the wall and even the opportunity to see Apollo 9 launch from the Kennedy Space Center as a young kid. My ambition all through life was to set the first boot prints on Mars. It didn't quite work out that way for my personal career. However, I was able to do some really amazing things with incredible people and uh, extraordinary 17-year career with NASA involving five space flights and seven spacewalks. So, you know, I was able to live out my my boyhood dream. Every kid on the block wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. They would you know, actually wheel in these big tube televisions into the classroom and we would watch the launches as they took place. And so, you know, I just kind of held on to that dream. I didn't talk about it so much all through my education. I thought, well, people would think that's kind of silly. You know, you, you can't grow up to become an astronaut. That's, that's too far away. But, uh, you know, I, I kept on plugging away at it. I knew what I wanted and I was able to sort of deconstruct the steps that I thought would be important to prepare myself to become an astronaut. So I, I worked hard on, on my education. I was involved in athletics and team activities and had some language skills and all these things kind of positioned me well for uh, eventual selection. I became an astronaut in, in 1992. Every kid growing up goes through the phase where they say, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. Like literally everyone says that sentence at some point in their life, but you're one of those select few that stuck with it So was it something from your parents or was it something growing up that gave you the capacity and the ability to persist with that dream or persist with that decision? What was it that made you not lose sight of that? I think two things were really central to that. First and foremost, my parents, they were so supportive of me trying difficult things. They were willing to let me fail. I I think as parents today, generally, we're probably overly protective of our kids. And I'm probably guilty of that as many parents are, but, but they would allow me to try new things and they supported me. And so, 
even though I, I sometimes bit off more that I could chew, they were there. And I think also the fact that I was an only child allowed us to travel the world a little bit. So uh, when I was a kid, we lived in West Africa, the Middle East, and in Europe. I graduated from high school in Athens, Greece. So that sense of adventure and willingness to try new things really set me up for, I think, success in life. And the other thing that I really draw a lot of strength from, actually, is my experience in the Boy Scouts, believe it or not. I, mm. I became an Eagle Scout. It's a long pathway to get there. Lots and lots of merit badges, service projects, then ranks. And a lot of people really get discouraged and don't make it all the way to the, the Eagle Scout Award. And so for me, I, I just kind of broke it down into manageable, achievable, rewardable steps. And you know, as you get further and further along, success begets more confidence and follow-on success. So I have sort of done that same thing throughout the rest of my life. I, you know, getting through college and medical school, pursuing a career as an astronaut, even now as a tech startup CEO, you have to kind of figure out first off where you want to get to, but then what are the steps along the pathway that you can achieve and build upon? And so I, I attribute a lot of my, my tenacity and success to that. Very cool. The number of places you lived is remarkable. Uh, Senegal, Lebanon, Iran, Greece, all over the United States. And I know you moved around with your parents this whole time and ended up going to med school at Stanford, got your medical internship at Harvard, and then like there's this whole like story where you almost qualify for the Olympics and lose. And it's like, how does that happen? And you get really into rock climbing. But you're telling me at all of those steps along the way, it's in the back of your head. I want to go to space someday. Absolutely. You've got to visualize success and, uh, you know, see your pathway towards that. And so absolutely the experiences that I sought out were strategic. Uh, they were also, you know, exciting and enjoyable for me. You know, participating in the sport of luge is one of the most exhilarating things I, I can possibly imagine. But I took a you know, very uh, structured approach to uh, all the things that I've done in my life. I, you know, if, if you're not going to try to be the best at whatever it is you're doing, you, you should find something else that you're more passionate about, I think. Mm. That's pretty powerful. And I know there was a point at where you almost qualify for the Olympics in Luge and there's people trying to convince you, no, you should stick around for the, the next go around because you can probably make it. But you decide, no, I'm I'm going to space and that is my focus. My focus is not the Olympics. I think so often there are those points in people's lives where the decision is not between good and bad anymore. It's between good and best, right? And so you're choosing <laughs> you're choosing between the Olympics and this far-off dream of, I still want to go to space. Was it hard not to get distracted on the journey? It can be. It's a long path, but if your true passion is a you know, faraway lofty goal, you, you have to keep focus. And um, resilience is something that's, for some reason, you know, coded in my DNA. I have something I'm, I'm pretty strong at. So same with, you know, climbing, you know, big mountains, it's, uh, which I've done as well. You have to withstand a lot of pain and suffering for that, you know, euphoric 30 minutes on top of the mountain. So yeah, for me, it, it was pretty clear when I was finishing up my, my medical training and I, I was also involved in the sport of luge, I, I realized that I needed to continue on with my career and, and continue on my path, hopefully to become an astronaut. And so I, luckily I made the, the right choice at the right time. Hmm. And so application opens up. I believe you're in Denver at this point and you find out that they are accepting applications. When that occurs, 
how many people apply to become an astronaut at any given time, and then walk us through some of that application process, because I know it's rigorous. Several thousand people will apply from across the country, um, some military, uh, some uh, civilian. Of course, I, I was a civilian uh, physician working in Denver, Colorado at the time. And so I really didn't think I had a shot at it, quite honestly. I hadn't finished my residency training at the time, so I decided that I would go ahead and apply it. I'd spoken to other folks who suggested, get your name in the hat. It may take three or four cycles before you eventually get selected. So I decided, well, I'll hopefully you know, get recognized, uh, maybe get an interview this first time, and then maybe two or four years down the road, maybe I would get the job. But uh, I ended up getting an interview, went down to Houston, Texas for a whole slew of medical exams, everything known to medical science, and then a few kind of tortuous uh, tests that they threw in just for good measure, I'm sure, and, <laughs> and some psychiatric kinds of assessments and things, and a big interview with uh, some wonderful people. There were 22 other candidates in my interview week. All told, I think they interviewed about 120 people for a class size of about uh, 20. Wow. So down-selected from you know, a much larger pool. And after my, my interview, I ended up uh, just waiting for, turned out to be uh, a little bit over three months. And every time the phone would ring, I was, is, is this NASA? <laughs> and, and if it is NASA, what are they going to tell me? The very last day of uh, March uh, 1992, I got a call from the head of the selection committee. And he said, hey, uh, still interested in coming to work for us down in, in uh, Houston? You know, I was very polite. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'd be very happy to, to do so. And I said, yeah, whatever you do, uh, you know, don't tell anybody because you know, we haven't issued the press release. We're going to do that tomorrow. So what on you know, this earth? Is, you know, just yeah. So it's just between us. Right. And uh, so, I, oh, yes, sir. And then, of course, you know, as soon as I got off the phone, I called everyone that I knew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. OK, so I've got a question there, though. They are calling this list of thousands of people that are PhDs, they have their doctorates, they've spent time in serving our, our nation in the armed forces, and they get that down to a list of 20-something, and then they ultimately make their selection. Most of those people on that list, even that didn't make it down to Houston for an interview, are probably brilliant, eminently qualified probably. So what so are – So many well-qualified people, yeah, way more – qualified people for the job, then they have opportunities, unfortunately. So what is the selection committee looking for? Like, what is the psychological factor or the mental factor? Or is it a physical thing that they're looking for in the individuals that they end up selecting? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, first and foremost, you need the requisite skill set. So degree in math, science, engineering, medicine, you know, something relevant to the, the space program, you need physical fitness and, you know, to be free of any risk of significant illness because they're going to spend millions of dollars training you over many years and they hope that you'll fly multiple missions. So there's a, the medical screening is to, to make sure that that works out. Ultimately, you know, there's a, a great deal of luck, I think, mm. to get the nod. The selection committee is just looking for someone that they wouldn't mind spending you know, a few weeks to a few months in a tin can with, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the crew compatibility is this person, team player, you know, they have a sense of humor, you know, would they be able to you know, chip in and, and do things not necessarily as a sign, but just to kind of one of the attributes of astronauts is we, we have to wear lots of different hats. Uh, it's not just myself as a physician doing clinical care in space. It's doing medical research science, but also engineering. It's uh, you know, flying robotic arms and spacewalking. You have to be sort of a, 
jack of all trades. And so But it sounds like you're saying a big piece of it is likability to a degree. Like, can we actually spend time with this person? It's very important, especially uh, on these long duration missions. You know, Scott Kelly, who recently returned from 340 days on the International Space Station, um, that's a lot of confined time with a a very small social circle. So if you don't have a sense of humor up there, it can be really hard on you, but it's also going to be really hard on your crewmates. And if you get frustrated, there really isn't much leaving. <laughs> you don't really walk out the door and say bye. <laughs> you can't float out the hatch and you know take a walk in the park. It's yeah, you're, you're in there until your, your ride comes. What are the things in the interview process that they're asking to determine someone's likability, humility, ability to cross context? Like how do they identify that in an interview with people that are obviously have been thinking about this singular interview and putting on a good face for years and years and years and years? Well, it, it's not easy to tease all of that out, quite honestly. So it's an hour, hour and a half interview with people that you quite honestly idolize. And I, I, I was at my interview table and I, I knew the seven or eight astronauts, you know, they were the pantheon of my heroes, of course. And I, you know, there's John Young, who uh, you know walked on the moon and flew the first space shuttle flight and, and flew in in Gemini and, and there were many other astronauts there as well and so you know I'm kind of awestruck and you know when I grow up I want to be like you guys you know of course but uh, for me I think what worked was I really didn't think I would get the job so I was very relaxed I I went into the room and I was very you know candid and and open and uh, I thought well this is exciting I'm getting to meet some of my heroes. You know, maybe in two or four years, I'll be able to come back here and the next selection cycle and uh, have a real shot at the job. So I think being relaxed has really helped me. But I would also say that the selection also is the the times in between the interviews. So, you know, that how do people interact with people that they don't see as part of the selection process? How do candidates interact with the nurses in the clinic? And custodial staff. I mean, I've taken these lessons with me hiring people for a variety of roles. Anyone can look good in an interview, 30 or 60 minute interview with someone. But if you ignore the housekeeper, when you come in, I'm going to hear, I I intentionally uh, go talk to that person and I find out, what did you think? And uh, if they were rude or dismissive, that tells me a lot about their character. So for the astronaut selection, we're there in Houston for about a week. And uh, those folks are under scrutiny uh, that entire time. They may not realize it, but they are. That's remarkable. Very good. Well, now we know if you're listening to this and you want to become an (laughs) astronaut, you know that you better treat everyone well because that's a sign of your character. But also because it's just being a good person, I think. That's part of what it is. And that's what they're looking for, I'm sure. So you find out you get accepted along with a class of of 22 others. But then I know it's not necessarily a given then that you're going to fly or when you're going to fly. But ultimately, I believe it was about a year later, you get selected for STS-66. And I think you said it's about a year of training that leads up to that day, November 3rd, 1994. I'd love for you, just because I think we don't get to hear these stories as much anymore today, sadly, but I'd love for you to walk us through the story of you spent your entire childhood dreaming and working towards this moment, and now on November 3rd, you're sitting on the launch pad. So what's going through your head? Because you get on that space shuttle hours before. What's going through your head? And then walk us through that launch. It's such a wild out-of-body experience. You're actually strapped into a rocket ship on your back with your 
your feet above heart level, you're, you're facing towards the heavens and the clock is counting down. You've been in there for about two hours. And because of the fact that you're on your back and your legs are above heart level, your, your bladder is also starting to fill up. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so good thing you're wearing a diaper. And, uh, so that's true. That, the, that is true. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no that getting up and going oh, yeah. to the bathroom. Oh, that's not happening. No way. No way. <laughs> in-flight service is horrible. Yeah. You just got to hang in there. And, um, yeah, as the clock ticks down, you think about all of your training, uh, the people that have preceded you, you think about those who have perished quite honestly. Uh, you think about the first stage and the challenger crew who tragically perished, uh, 73 seconds into their mission on STS-51L, you recognize the the significance of what you're about to do. You really hope that every technician has properly, uh, you know, tightened every bolt and, you know, every bit of code is ready to go because, you know, at T0, 7 million pounds of thrust are going to be forcibly ejecting you from the planet. And, 7 uh, you know, million pounds you, of thrust? 7 million pounds of thrust. It's crazy. It's sort of like the steepest roller coaster ride you've ever been on your entire life, but it it lasts for eight and a half minutes. Oh my word. So walk us through the countdown though. When they start saying 10, 9, 8, I mean, it's that iconic countdown that we've seen in all the movies and, and some of us have seen live. Are you shaking? Are you scared? Are you excited? What is emotionally going through your head at that moment? There's a extraordinary exhilaration. You know, it's something you've dreamt of for your entire life and you're, you're about to, you know, fulfill your boyhood dream to live uh, your own American dream to be able to fly in space. And, and so there's a extreme sense of excitement and exhilaration, but also there's a, this nagging sense of, God, I sure hope I don't screw up. You know, uh, you know, cause you know, you've got a job to do. The actions that we take now have real consequence. And so we rely upon our training and, and you get your game face on. There's no uh, better way to say it. You spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in simulators and you've experienced serious malfunctions in the simulator. The, the training team has tried to kill you many times in the simulator, <laughs> most of the time you've lived. And so you have that, that strength of, of knowledge that you can overcome most things and you're very very laser focused on the data that's in front of you. There were times during the launch on my first flight where I was just looking at data and I was really concentrating on the major events that were about to happen, like the solid rocket boosters separating. And my role is sort of the, uh, I was the mission specialist one. So I was seated behind the pilot there to help in um, signature recognition. If something failed, what do we do? If something else failed, if a we had a hydraulic system and a computer failure. What is the combined impact of those two two things? And you know, there are some pretty significant things that uh, you know could bite the crew if we didn't respond appropriately. So I was very focused on that task. But you know, there there are things that are happening out in front of you. You look out the forward window and you see this brilliant flash of light. Those are rocket engines separating the solid rocket boosters. And you think, oh my god, this is this is just the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. You kind of, you have these uh, brief moments where you, you try and absorb the, the human experience of it, but by and large, you're really focused on doing the job that you were assigned because the, you know, the first eight and a half minutes of the flight are the most dynamic and, and critical. Mm. How many G's are you getting up to at that point after launch? What is the max? 
So the space shuttle basically uh, was limited to three Gs because they're very sensitive, you know, aerosurfaces. It's it sort of looks like an aircraft or a glider. So uh, those are quite sensitive, as are the the tiles, the the thermal protection mm-hmm. system on the the craft. So we were we would actually throttle down our acceleration to not exceed three times uh, gravity. Wow! So it, it's uh, not that difficult to withstand. It it requires you know forceful pressure breathing. You have to inhale forcefully, and then to exhale, you just relax your chest so that there's a different cadence and a, a different sense of uh, workload on the on the launch. But it's not like, you know, your face being pulled back uh, in, in some you know, crazy sci-fi movie or anything like that. <laughs> so I know in the book, you say it's about eight and a half minutes, and then you break through the, the Earth's atmosphere, and you're at zero Gs at that point. And you look down, and you see you see Europe, which is pretty remarkable yeah. in eight and a half minutes. <laughs> Tell us about that first moment where you kind of, I mean, was it like this wake-up moment where it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm in space right now? Or tell us about it. Well, I had spent time in weightlessness in, in parabolic flight. We have these aircraft that NASA that would you know, fly like a porpoise through the sky, and at the top of the arc, they would push the nose over, we have about 25 or 30 seconds of weightlessness. And then the, the pilots would pull the nose up at about two Gs and go back and forth, allowing us to experience brief periods of, of weightlessness. That can be kind of provocative for a lot of people. So they call it the vomit comet. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a colorful name for that airplane, but uh, a great way to prepare for flight. I'd spent a lot of time in our weightless environment facilities, the big swimming pools where we practice our spacewalk. So I had a sense of what weightlessness would be like, but there's nothing like that initial taste of really being in space. So when we have main engine cutoff or MECO of our space shuttle, and all of a sudden, you, you even though your your seat restraints are tightened really, really tightly, you feel like you're lurching out of your seat. Cables around you start to float around. You look out the forward windows, you can see the curvature of the Earth and the blackness of space overhead. It's just a, a jaw-dropping, beautiful experience. Mm. Nothing like it. I know we look and we see the five or the seven people that are on that shuttle, but you've already mentioned it multiple times in our conversation, the thousands of people that go into making that thing run the way it was supposed to over the course of that eight and a half minutes. So can you speak to the power of teamwork at NASA and what makes something like that go off without a hitch? Like, how do you make that happen? It's such a, a powerful team that that NASA has created and, and fostered over over decades. I loved doing before flights would be to go through the shops where the space shuttles were being prepared and just hanging out with the workers, the folks that are doing the inspections, doing the, the installations of hardware. These are folks who really felt uh, and and were indeed a part of the crew and part of the mission. They had a critical role. Every person whether they were a, a technician, engineer, flight controller, flight director, instructor, scientist, physician, or, or crew member was part of this bigger team. And literally for every spatial mission, there were you know, over a thousand people who, who touched that mission here and in, in, um, in places around the world. And so everyone took their responsibility very, very seriously. It's an exciting business, but it's not a business that can tolerate error. The bar is set very, very high for a reason. And so we felt very, very comfortable and safe going into these missions, knowing that everyone had the same set of values and really felt a sense of ownership for those flights. 
It's a remarkable metaphor there. I mean, you are literally going on a mission, but in a very real way, those thousands of people are on the mission with you. And we see all the time. I mean, we work with businesses around the country. You own a business now. I'm sure you've seen this. Mm -hmm. The ones that succeed are the ones where everyone from the janitor to the VP to the CEO can draw a direct line from their role to the mission at hand. That's right. The role that you got to play is the obvious direct line, but it sounds like what you're saying is everyone across the massive organization that is NASA sees themselves as part of that mission. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it was really struck home to me in the aftermath of the Space Shuttle Columbia tragedy, STS-107, when we lost that wonderful crew. It wasn't uh, exclusively felt by the, the astronaut office, but every member of the NASA community felt that loss uh, in their heart. And it was uh, a deep and devastating loss. And it really galvanized the entire team, regardless of the position, to never let that sort of thing happen again. So yeah, there's an incredibly strong culture within NASA. It's something that I've, I've tried to take with me to the organizations that I've been to since mm. leaving the agency. Here's a math refresher. There are only 24 hours in a day, so you and your team need to streamline time-consuming tasks to focus on the activities that make money. Smart businesses are realizing that to reduce headaches as they scale, they need NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform. With NetSuite, you can reduce IT costs because it's cloud-based. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one source of truth. It's a big deal. And you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, saving time and cutting manual tasks and errors. So join the more than 37,000 smart companies like Ramsey Solutions that have done the math and are boosting their efficiency with NetSuite. And right now you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to drive the right behaviors for your business absolutely free at NetSuite.com slash Ramsey. That's NetSuite.com slash Ramsey to get your own KPI checklist. This episode is brought to you by Trainual. Even when you're great at running the day-to-day, a lot of leaders struggle to delegate. But delegation is a critical leadership skill, and empowering your team by building that skill just takes having the right system in place. Well, Trainual is that system, and it's a game-changer. Trainual is an easy-to-use app that helps document and organize everything about your company in one place. Clear outlines for every role and responsibility, step-by-step training for all your SOPs and employee handbook content, an org chart and directory. You can build accountability tests. Employees can even use Trainual's powerful search to answer their own questions. Companies using Trainual are cutting training time and related costs by up to 75%. Get started with over 300 templates and their world-class support. It's time to get your entire team playing from the same playbook. Visit trainual.com slash entree today for a demo and get 15% off your first year with code entree15. That's 15% off at T-R-A-I-N-U-A-L dot com slash entree with code E-N-T-R-E-1-5. 
are you at the stage of business where for you as an owner and certainly for your team, you are just overloaded with tasks and activities and you're recognizing that you're at the stage where you need to start bringing system and process into your organization? Well, from a coaching perspective, the first step that we recommend you take is start automating any tasks that are repeated. And specifically, whenever it comes to automating customer communication, the service we recommend is called Keep. We've worked with them for years to grow our business and serve our customers well, and we've seen small business owners win by leveraging the power of this service. And so if you're at this stage where you need to start working smarter and not just harder, Keep is offering a free trial to our podcast listeners. And so if you want to take advantage of that free trial with Keep, text the word work smart to 33444. Again, that's the word work smart, no spaces to 33444 and work with Keep to start automating your customer communication. So from that first flight, that first flight is a success, and you go on to fly four more uh, STS-86, which I found out you flew that with uh, the guy that coached my basketball team with my dad. That was kind of cool. Mike Bloomfield was my basketball Mike coach. Bloomer. Yeah, okay. that's right. So that, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> reading your book reminded me of how special a place Houston is because, I mean, the people of Houston, I mean, they make the space program happen in a large way, and it's uh, they're all America's over. America's space city. That's right. Yep, absolutely. So. So STS-66, STS-86, STS-95, STS-100, and STS-120. I know you already walked through this a little bit. STS-107, the commander of that mission was a friend of yours, Rick Husband. Specifically, I think he designated you as what they call the family escort for his family, where you're going to be kind of the person that is the point person for the family while Rick is on the mission. The launch is a massive success. The 16-day mission is a success. Walk us through what happens on the morning that the shuttle is supposed to land and what takes place that day. My goodness, yeah. The, we we had uh, four family escorts for that crew. It was such a, an honor to be asked by Rick to support his family and, and the other crew members and their families during the flight. And uh, he had done so for one of my prior flights as well. So we just on flight day 16, we expected the shuttle to come back through the atmosphere as it always had before to hear the twin sonic booms, uh, to land for them to hug their kids, uh, and, uh, have a wonderful warm welcome back in Houston after that mission. But as you certainly know, 16 minutes before the scheduled landing, because of a, a breach in the, the left wing of the space shuttle that had been caused by a piece of foam that had come off our orange external tank, uh, the gas tank, if you will, of the space shuttle on the launch, they never made it home. Over the skies of Texas, the, the space shuttle Columbia uh, disintegrated and uh, the crew never made it home. And uh, so it was, it was a, a gut-wrenching time for the entire NASA family. And, uh, and so one of the things that I like to think about is uh, just how challenge and adversity really galvanizes, you know, pulls the best out of people and especially out of the NASA team. And so over the next two and a half years, after we had gotten through the the acute grief and, and mourning, we really had to double down and figure out what had happened and by all means, never let something like that ever happen again. And so 
it was really for me personally, one of the most creative times in my life. We worked with an amazing team of folks who helped co-develop all sorts of different tools, procedures, materials to affect a repair on a space shuttle in orbit should something like that ever happen again. And so every day it was a brand new idea, uh, experiment to run, but ultimately we were able to find ways to repair damaged wings as well as damaged tiles in the space shuttle. And about two and a half years after the accident, we were then safely able to return the space shuttle to flight. It was a very difficult time for for everyone. I, I certainly can considered hanging up my spacesuit at that point, but spending time with the families in, in particular and realizing how much the crew would have wanted the legacy of spaceflight you know, to continue, I was able to you know, see a path to flying one more mission. Hmm. George Bush said following that crash, my fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 a.m. this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia is lost. There are no survivors. The same creator who names the stars also knows the names of the seven souls we mourn today. The crew of the shuttle Columbia did not return safely to Earth, yet we can pray they are all safely home. You knew Rick well. I assume you knew most of the people on that flight. I knew the entire crew very well. Yeah. What is their legacy today? First off, I, I would just say that I think that was perhaps President Bush's most beautiful speech ever. I, I thought he captured that moment so well. And although we weren't ready to heal, it was something that we needed to hear. And it, it certainly was a very beautiful way to express what everyone was thinking. I think the legacy of, of the Columbia crew is in their flawless mission. The fact that they you know, worked together as a brilliant team. They had trained together for a lot longer than many other crews because the space station was already under assembly. And so their mission had been successively kind of bumped back for other higher priority International Space Station assembly missions. So they had trained together for for years and years, a whole lot longer than other crews. And so they really had an incredible kinship among them. It was very infectious. Wherever they went as a crew, you, you were wrapped up into the camaraderie that they had as a team. And so I think they'll always be remembered in such glowing terms. And in terms of the broader context of the lessons learned from the failures that happened on their mission, you really need to listen to the uh, the failures that you've had in prior missions. So what I mean by that is on a couple of prior spatial missions, we'd had large pieces of foam coming off. This is a problem that was unfortunately sort of written off. Hey, we've had this problem in the past. We did okay. It's safe to go ahead and launch STS-107 Columbia. And that was not the right decision. There was enough information there to warrant a more detailed, thoughtful, analysis of, of the problem of foam coming off of the tank. And so as a leader, I think if you see a concerning trend, uh, maybe if it's even only one or two data points, really think through, is this something that portends something more serious down the road? And I, I know that the, you know, the flight control team and, uh, and the engineering teams at NASA certainly have incorporated those painful lessons learned into the work that they do. It's a very difficult thing to do. You know, you, you have a schedule and you've got a budget and you've got it. You want to stay on track. But if you're doing really serious work 
with potentially catastrophic outcomes if you don't get it right. You really need to to listen to uh, your spacecraft, and and also you need to listen to the people that are uh, waving their hand, waving a red flag, saying, "Hey, you know, I I don't think that this is safe." Mm. There were people who had raised the flag that were not listened to, unfortunately. Perhaps if they had been listened to, we we might have been able to uh, observe it with a, a special uh, uh, satellite. We could have uh, taken some pictures, seen that there was a real issue there, and potentially even sent up a, a rescue space shuttle to recover that crew. Hmm. So, From a leadership perspective, how do you walk that line of NASA, especially at that time, but even still today, is the best in the world at sending men and women to space? And so with being the best in the world or being world-class at anything comes this natural drift into complacency and being able to rest on your laurels. Right. So you don't want to be complacent. You want to stay vigilant. But at the same time, you do have a timeline, you have a budget, and you have to keep moving forward. So what is the proper way to walk that line? Because it seems like that would be incredibly challenging. It's extremely challenging. And you, you nailed it. Uh the greater your successes, the the greater tendency for complacency. The thing that I take with me to, to my organizations now is the importance of creating a, a culture where everyone from the, the most senior down to the most junior has the ability to speak up and is encouraged to speak up and say something if it isn't safe, if it isn't right. If you create an environment like that and you listen to them with a good intent, You've done the best I think that you can. You may not be able to prevent every calamity, but you certainly have a much better shot at heading things off at the pass. Mm. It's certainly in the two spatial tragedies that the program withstood, Columbia as well as Challenger, there were people who were saying that it wasn't safe and um, we should have listened to them. There was enough information, enough data. There were smart enough engineers to figure out that we should not have launched those two missions. So it's never going to be an easy task for a leader, but I would just say, make sure to actively seek out dissenting opinion and vet them. Mm. What is the deciding factor for you deciding to go up one more time on STS-120 after having witnessed and been so close to the families of those who just went through this? Well, I realized that NASA had done everything that they possibly could to restore safety to the program, both culturally as well as technically. We understood what had happened with the foam that had caused the accident on STS-107 Columbia. We also had a toolkit to repair things. Potentially, if it were to occur again, we were much more rigorous in inspecting the space shuttle before coming back home. So a lot of very positive things had happened. But also on a personal note, spending time with the families and uh, talking it over with my family and friends, I realized the importance of the work that we were doing in space and sometimes taking risk is worthy of the benefits that work. And uh, I I realized that, you know, the crew of Columbia, as well as the families uh, wanted the space shuttle program to continue. So I decided that it was, it was time to take one last flight. One last flight, and that flight is STS-120, and boy, you made sure to leave on a, an intense note. This is one of my favorite stories from your book. You get up there on, I believe it's your last of, over the course of your career, seven spacewalks, EVAs, extravehicular right. activities. So you're outside the space shuttle, and this is what you write. You say, the crew witnesses something, 
And this is what you say in your book. You say, no one has to say anything. Right now, there is nothing to say. Everyone in space and in mission control below immediately knows it's one of those holy crap moments you never want to have 249 miles above the Earth's surface at 17,500 miles an hour. (laughs) So tell us what was that moment and then walk us through what happened next. Yeah, it was really pretty extraordinary. We were finishing up our third of five planned spacewalks on this particular mission. We had just relocated a large solar array truss, a big structure on the outside of the space station. We had put it out at the very tip of the space station and we're commanding these solar panels. They're sort of like leveler blinds in your home. They're an accordion that would extend out to about a hundred feet in length. And one of them, as it was being commanded to extend, began to rip apart. It was behaving really wildly and, we realized very quickly that we had to stop the extension of these solar panels and figure out what was going on. We had basically a limp noodle out there, an energized solar panel, but we couldn't bring it back in. We couldn't extend it all the way out. It was a really critical situation. Do we have some other way to go out and fix a solar panel and allow it to be fully extended and support the, the growth of the International Space Station or go out on this recovery spacewalk and throw away a billion dollar national asset, basically toss away a a huge solar panel. You said a billion dollars, correct? One billion with a B. Yeah. Holy cow. Uh, So, okay. So let me ask you this. I mean, I, my dad's a NASA engineer, right? So he has contingency plans for his contingency plans for his contingency plans. And he, I mean, he, the guy overplans everything. And I know that is characteristic (laughs) of the organization, right? right? NASA is iconic as being the most prepared organization in the world. And you get up there and it's like, essentially what you're saying is we didn't prepare for this. So in that moment, when that happens and the unexpected inevitably occurs, how does NASA respond in that moment? We were off the script for sure. This is something that had never been envisioned. Uh, You never want to get anywhere close to a live solar panel up in space uh, with a spacewalker because uh, there's really no great way to prevent electricity coming from the panel getting into the spacesuit environment. So this was you know, something that hadn't really been conjured up before we, we had launched. But what I love about NASA is its capacity in times of great challenge to come up with absolutely brilliant solutions. This is when NASA really steps up its game. People worked around the clock for 72 hours in mission control and elsewhere around the country, working with simulators of the solar panels that we had up in space to get a spacewalker, uh, me, <laughs> out to the very tip of the space station to uh, essentially cut out a piece of frayed guide wire that had begun to rip the solar panel apart and then install five what we called cufflinks, specially prepared lengths of wire that uh, would allow us to essentially suture the, the solar panel back together. Of course, we had to build all the stuff with the supplies that we had on hand. It wasn't like we could you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and get a, a solar air repair kit. We had to build it with the stuff we had on hand. So it was sort of a, an Apollo 13 sort of an evolution. It really showed the, the true grit of NASA. When the chips are down, NASA comes up with brilliant plans B, C, D, and E. Thankfully, this repair solution that they had come up with worked beautifully. We went out on one final spacewalk on the mission, spent about seven hours and 19 minutes outside at the very tip of the space station. Doug Wheelock and myself out there, but Stephanie Wilson and Dan Tani inside controlling the robotic arm, Pam 
Melroy, our, our commander, watching over my shoulder, basically, and guiding us through the procedure. And then all sorts of experts in Mission Control Houston, looking at the robotic arm systems, the solar panels, the spacesuit systems. It was really NASA at its very finest. And you were as far out from the space station as anyone had ever been at that point. Is that correct? On the spacewalk? Right. It was a God's eye view, I'll tell you. Um, I was on this crazy 90-foot-long cobbled-together robotic boom system perched way above the space station, and then they drove me out to the very tip of the complex, and I saw the space station from angles that no one had ever seen before. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. The part that really got me is whenever you talked about whenever you were out there, you knew that if something were to happen to your spacesuit, you had 30 minutes of emergency oxygen and you said it takes about 45 minutes to get back to the airlock. It's like, oh my gosh. So in the midst of all that, you've got the most wonderful, I'm going to use your words, God's eye view all around you. You've got all the people in your crew watching you in this moment. You've got millions of people down below live streaming this thing. And you're having to sew this thing back together. How do you find the focus to be able to work in such an intense environment? It was certainly the most intense uh, day of my life, I can't deny. But um, you know, when you are, you know, again, in the zone, as I spoke of earlier, you can really tune out the extraneous distractions. You know, if I'd looked down at various times, I would have seen the Great Barrier Reef or the Himalayas. You know, the, there are a lot of distractions out on a spacewalk, as you, <laughs> as you might guess. So I had my blinders on, and really that focus was essential because, you know, there's a large solar panel directly in front of me. I couldn't have any direct contact with it. So I had a special tool that I called the hockey stick, an L-shaped tool about, you know, two feet in length that I could put out in front of me to protect myself uh, from any direct contact. And my buddy, Doug Wheelock, we called him Wheels, uh, was down there. Um, he had a really important role retracting the guide wire. And, and then he was there spotting for me, keeping me safe and keeping the robotic arm safe. So everybody had their critical roles, uh, you know, Stephanie and Dan and, and Pam inside as well. Yeah, the time just flew. It went by in an instant. Thankfully, I had really amazing 45-minute commute back <laughs> to the uh, truss of the International Space Station. So I, I really savored those, those 45 minutes of you know real elation. You know, knowing that we had finished the job. No kidding. Maybe it's crass, but my instant thought after I read about this was, I went to well, you saved taxpayers a billion dollars. So do you get a commission on that? Like, what is what is the commission <laughs> on that job? <laughs> You write, as I fly back toward the airlock, my stomach growls and my beat-up knuckles sting with blisters. I'm exhausted but overjoyed. As I fly through space this one last time, I'm grateful. I can't believe we all did it, and I can't believe I got to be a part of it. I look once again drunk with the beauty of the earth and the thin blue line below. I think of the team, the hundreds of brilliant and hardworking people who came together for this, one of NASA's finest moments. We did it. What do you think, just in being at the tip of the sphere of that experience, what is the lesson that we can all learn from that experience? Power of teams, uh, first and foremost. Any noteworthy, significant accomplishment in any of our lives is always the result of the great team, whether it's uh, the home team you know, supporting you, uh, whether it's your instructors, your teachers, your support staff. There aren't really very many solitary performers in the world, e even solo sport, you know, kinds of athletes, they've got their coaches, nutritionists, 
there's an army of people behind you. And so always recognizing the contributions of every single person and, and listening to seeking out input from many viewpoints as possible. You know, I think the other thing that I take from that life experience is just never giving up. I realized that the repair that we tried to do and, and successfully accomplished on that spacewalk, had it not been successful, we would have come back inside safely. We would have kept uh, our spacewalk safe. We wouldn't have taken undue risk, but we would have gone out a couple of days later with a plan C or, or a plan D. Eventually, we would have found something that would have worked. You know, NASA is not the, the type of organization to give up, and I think we can all learn from that, hmm. you know, the tenacity, resilience that, that they display. Well, that tees us up for this next chapter. Most people, I think, would kind of say like, okay, well, I've been to space five times. I think that's probably good in terms of a resume, uh, much less medical school and almost qualifying for the Olympics. But you're not done yet, Scott. So the next thing that kind of occurs on your timeline is in 2008, you set out on this expedition to climb Everest. I was reminded in reading your book how dangerous of a proposition that actually is. I think at the time that you wrote it, 250 people had died trying to climb that mountain. Uh, it is not a – even if you train for years, it is not a guaranteed thing. But walk us kind of through – you made it up to base camp three and then you kind of reached this crucial decision-making moment as you're climbing Everest. Walk us through that decision. I had spent upwards of six weeks in the mountain. Actually, it was day 59 of my expedition. Uh, I had taken a rotation up to Camp 3. I was actually on my summit push. So at about 24,500 feet where we start to use supplemental oxygen. And I didn't know it at the time, but I had uh, ruptured a disc in my low back. I had developed excruciating low back pain. It tried to stretch out. I tried to ice my back down at that precarious spot, but without any kind of relief through the night. So I got up the following morning with the intent to uh, continue on up. But the summit was basically 24 hours away if all had gone well. And um, I had to have help from my teammates just to get my crampons on, the, you know, the spikes that we use on our mountaineering boots. And I needed help to change out my oxygen cylinder. So this is really a, a serious situation, a defining moment in my life. Should I go on and pursue my boyhood dream of climbing Mount Everest, maybe risking my own life, maybe risking the summit success and, and maybe even the lives of my teammates who would have done everything they could to try and save me. No one can carry you down from those altitudes. If, if you're going to come back and make it a round trip, it's only under your own power. No one has the ability to carry someone down from those precarious heights. So I did the right thing. I realized that the summit was not going to be. And uh, very, very slowly, I had to work my way down in excruciating pain, the Lhotse face of Mount Everest, and then eventually getting back down to base camp. And about uh, three days later, I made it back home to Houston, got in an MRI scanner. And sure enough, I had a ruptured disc in my lumbar spine. I needed surgery. So the question that I have there, I mean, up to that point on that mountain, and I know there's no way your life was easy up to that point, right? There's no way it's the straight line <laughs> up to Everest, but it seems as though the story of your career and of your life up to that point is that there hasn't been a mountain that you couldn't scale. You go through med school with flying colors, you join the astronaut corps, you complete all these incredible missions, 
And so it's almost like what we were talking about earlier with complacency. There is not really a body of work that tells you you can't reach the top of this mountain. So it seems like it would be really easy to take an unnecessary and an irrational risk in that moment. But you have the logical ability to say, no, I'm going to turn around. Where do you think that came from in that moment? And I mean, was it a really, really difficult decision? Because it seems like it would be easy to really want to go for it. Sadly, many, many climbers would have taken that risk. And in fact, that's why there are close to 300 souls still on the mountain. It's a tragedy that so many individuals have have made it a one-way trip. And for me, I, I think I took with me my astronaut training and and just kind of the general mindset of team before self. My family team, for one, I have two beautiful kids at home and uh, I did not want to make a one-way trip on their behalf. And I also didn't want to put my teammates at risk either for having them try to somehow lower me down in a crippled state. So I kept my head about me. I kept my wits about me. I, I used the same sort of risk management framework that I use as an astronaut, as a matter of fact, and what many physicians use in clinical care. We have to always keep the big picture managing a high-risk situation like that. So I went back the following year with the knowledge that even if you know enticed by the, the lure of standing on the summit of my dreams, Mount Everest, if, if things weren't right, I knew that I would turn around. Mm-hmm. I would put safety before a success like that. That's pretty remarkable. You strike me as someone that pushes the envelope in terms of adrenaline, but you are not reckless about it. And that is a pretty remarkable tightrope to walk. But that does take you, you go back, I think a year later to Everest and you just use the phrase, the summit of your dreams, right? That is it. And you make it to the top and you get to witness an orbital sunrise from the top of Mount Everest. So we didn't talk about this earlier, but you have seen Everest from the space station and now you have seen the orbital sunrise from Everest and you took moon rocks with you. Like, Scott, you are the coolest person I've ever met in my entire life. But what what goes through your head as you're sitting there watching the sunrise and the top of the highest peak on Earth? Well, it it was extraordinary. Seeing a, a sunrise up in space is uh, magical. It's it's the full spectrum of light. You know, as the sun pops up from behind the what we call the terminator, the limb of of the Earth, and you, you see the the diffraction pattern. Uh, you essentially a a rainbow like uh, display of brilliant light. But it lasts about thirty seconds. Up on the summit of Everest, I saw a sunrise, but it lasted on my descent about thirty minutes. Hmm. So it was just so spectacular to see. The curvature of the earth. I don't know if there are any flat earthers that listen to your show, but I can guarantee that the earth is round. <laughs> I've seen it from not only space, but uh, but also from the top of Everest. So you can tell us it's round. <laughs> is that right, Scott? It is round. I guarantee. I guarantee it is round. But you know, to see the you know, all these mountains, the world is dropping down beneath you in 360 degrees. Lhotse, which is uh, the fourth highest mountain in the world, is, is just a short distance away. And you can see Cho'oyu, another 8,000 meter peak over to the right just an incredible sense of elation there. You're, the summit itself was about the size of a, a kitchen table with precipitous uh, you know, walls on dropping down on all sides. And it's covered in these beautiful Tibetan prayer flags. And a golden Buddha is actually mounted on a tripod up top there as well. It's, it's just a, dreaming about it for so many years to finally stand there was, was really extraordinary. Mm. 
So now you own and run a company called Fluidity Technologies. I'd love for you to share with us a little bit about what y'all are doing and what are the lessons you are learning now as you are operating as the owner and leader of that organization? Well, it's, it's funny. I, I do a lot of public speaking keynotes for various organizations, and I also you know do a lot of things uh, for kids. I love you know, hopefully trying to inspire young people to pursue you know, STEM fields. But so I do a lot of speaking around my life experiences. But one of the most common questions is, uh, what's the toughest, uh, you know, going out on a crazy, difficult spacewalk or uh, climbing Mount Everest? And I say, neither. The most difficult thing I've ever done is uh, a tech startup. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, some of that is tongue in cheek, but the act of invention, which is what is probably my strong suit. I'm, I'm a creative. So I have, I have a, a number of patents and identifying significant unmet needs and engineering solutions for them is something that I'm pretty strong at, but there's so much more to building a company. It's the, uh, the fundraising, the marketing, the, the manufacturing, the many facets of growing a, a company. And so I've learned by, by trial and error, uh, but I have a wonderful team around me. Uh, we're a small tech startup based in Houston, Texas, focused on control systems for movement through three-dimensional space, whether it's a drone or it's a computer game or VR or even a surgical robot. Anything that needs uh, very precise control, we can put you on our controls and within seconds you can be flying like a fighter pilot with great precision and intuitive ease, with tactile feedback, great situational awareness. Whereas if, if you're flying a drone with a traditional control to learn how to do a figure eight, very basic maneuver, but it's, it's actually quite difficult using like an Xbox you know, gaming controller. You can do that with 30 seconds of instruction. Hmm. So we're, we're unlocking human potential for you know, movement through space. And uh, we're really excited about our future. Right now, our, our first product is called the FT Aviator, catered for drone pilots. But in the future, we'll be able to uh, you know, pilot fly-by-wire helicopters, industrial cranes, augmented reality environments, games, computer-aided design, even surgical robots in the human body. What is the biggest leadership lesson you're learning right now? Well, I, I think hiring well, really vetting talent, making sure that you've got self-starters, uh, you know, talented people who are able to to wear lots of different hats, especially in a tech startup where there are many other roles, uh, whether it's formally assigned as part of your job description or it's just something that needs to get done. People need to kind of see where the gaps are and 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 get the jobs done. So I've been very fortunate to uh, to now assemble a group of incredibly talented people who are all mission-driven, mission-focused, as, as we talked about earlier. And so I think finding the right people, developing a, a mission statement that everyone is fully behind, and then being really tenacious, you know, not giving up. That's a long, long road from that paper napkin idea to, you know, actually you know, getting to an exit. <laughs> Well, if there's anyone whose life is a testament to the ability to take a paper napkin idea and make it become reality, I think yours is it. I would love for you to speak to the audience right now just from your perspective. I think you have this unique perspective in that you have you have been able to live out and are continuing to live out your dreams. 
And so you have this unique perspective in that you know it's possible. And maybe it's not everyone's dream to get into space, to climb Mount Everest, to start a tech startup. But I, I, we firmly believe as an organization, everyone has dreams and all of those dreams are valid. Right. So what would you say to that person that has those dreams, that knows what they are, uh, and now it's time to do something about it? What would you tell them from your perspective? I would say it's, it's so vitally important to have dreams and to clearly articulate them, at least to yourself, you know, write them down, be as specific as possible, but then have the tenacity to make them come true. And I, what I see actually in a lot of young people, every young kid, as you started the show, has an ambition to become an astronaut or to become, you know, to save the rainforest or study dinosaurs. Kids always have, you know, great dreams, but somewhere along the line, many of them lose those uh, trajectories. And so I think it's important to remind yourself, okay, where is it that I really want to go? Study patterns of success. Who's been there before you? And what is my pathway to success? How do I break it down? You know, the, the Eagle Scout pathway that I described earlier, how can I break my pathway down to get to where I want to go? And I think if you can see those steps and you can reward yourself with incremental successes along the way, you may or may not get to whatever that ultimate goal is, but I can guarantee you the doors that will open up for you, the new opportunities, the people you meet, so many great things will happen because you've pursued your passion. So, uh, I guess that would be my my words of hopefully wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, we are so grateful for your time today. Um, what you have done over the course of your life is truly remarkable. It's inspirational. But I think maybe even more powerful and certainly more ironic is the fact that you are just so down to earth. Um, <laughs> that is like the weirdest possible <laughs> phrase to use, but I think it's true. We're grateful for the story you've lived and for the example that you set for all of us. Thanks so much. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity to participate. There's so much to be learned and taken from how Scott connected individually, but also how NASA connected as an institution to a mission and a vision that was greater than themselves. And that's one of the reasons why our team created the Mission Statement Mapper. It's to help you both define and then communicate what is your personal mission statement, your personal why, but then also what is the mission statement for your organization. So if you don't have one yet, this is an exercise that you need to walk through and we've got a free PDF that is going to take you through the steps that we coach people through every single day. So if you want to get the mission statement mapper, text the word mission to 33444. Again, that's the word mission to 33444, or you can click the link that's in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Entree Leadership Podcast. If you did, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. For a chance to win a $25 Amazon gift card, you can review this episode by clicking the link that's in the show notes. And be sure to follow us on social media at Entree Leadership. This episode was produced by Tim Hole and it was edited and mixed by Will Rudder. I'm Alex Judd, and on behalf of the entire Entree Leadership team, thanks for listening. We'll talk with you again very soon.
Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, you should check out other great podcasts from the Ramsey Network, like The Ken Coleman Show. According to a recent Gallup poll, nearly 70% of Americans are disengaged at work. If you dread going into work every Monday morning and you're just trying to make it to the weekend, The Ken Coleman Show is for you. Everyone has a sweet spot. Your sweet spot is at the intersection of your greatest talent and greatest passion. We will help you discover what it is you were born to do, and then we'll help you create a plan to make your dream job a reality. You matter, and you have what it takes. Join the conversation on The Ken Coleman Show. To hear full episodes, just search Ken Coleman wherever you listen to podcasts or go to kencoleman.com.